Gene, you have a hard stop? A um, mildly hard stop. Okay. <laughs> I could hear you kind of categorize it. How do, I, how, do I, how do I say it correctly? A, like, semi-firm, I don't know, like... like no, not semi-firm, let's see. No, no, not that. <laughs> Spongy, but, like, not yeah. like latex, not like, like a bath sponge, you know? Like. Yeah, that's about it. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash This episode of iFreaks is brought to you in part by Postcards. Postcards is the simplest way to allow user feedback from right inside your application. With just a simple gesture, anyone testing your app can send you a postcard containing a screenshot of the app and some notes. It's a great way to handle bug reports and feature requests from your client. It takes five minutes to set up, and the first five postcards each month are free. Get started today by visiting www.postcard.es. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to ifreakshow.com slash codeschool. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 80 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis. Pete Hodgson. Hello from Coit Tower. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Chris Stevenson. Hello from San Francisco. Chris, do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Yeah, I'm um, CTO of a small startup called Applause. Uh, we do um, iPhone and Android apps. Uh, we started doing music discovery apps on iPad primarily. We had an app called History of Jazz, followed by Road to Woodstock, very music-centered. Then we did an app, music discovery app called Band of the Day, which was literally what it sounds like. You get a band every day with some content, some music to listen to, and some stuff to read about the band. And that was done on iOS and Android. And then subsequent to that, we now have an app called Applause, which is we've renamed the company to Match, which is about buying tickets. And we have an iOS app that's been out for a couple of years now. And we are literally at this moment finishing up the Android app, which will be released later this week. So before I was a iOS Android mobile developer, I was a consultant at ThoughtWorks, actually with Pete Hodgson, for quite some time. Spent nine years traveling around the world doing all sorts of random software development, which has been great experience in terms of meeting people and, and seeing how things are done around the place. And it's nice to be settled in one place, though, after a, such a long time of traveling and working in mobile, which is, I think, the most exciting part of software development right now. Unless, of course landing on a comet somewhere, which is also happening as we speak. <laughs> awesome. Those are tough gigs to get, though. <laughs> yeah. 
What, writing mobile apps or landing on comets? Both, kind of. <laughs> People give you more of a shot with mobile apps. I saw an awesome Vine today uh, showing, like, the science team, or I guess the team of scientists that were landing it, like, celebrating just after the harpoon went in or whatever. And I, I'm pretty sure next conference talk I give, I'm going to use that GIF at some point. It's just like a bunch of geeks high-fiving each other and hugging. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> The thing that always surprises me about those events is that these people have been working for 15, 20 years on this one thing and getting to the point where it's a make or break moment at the end of that is insane. I mean, that's your life, life's work right there. Uh, it makes what we do seem kind of, uh, you know, fairly prosaic in comparison. Yeah, it's even worse than the App Store. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to see one of those guys shooting the harpoon at the comet, you know, looking like Captain Ahab. (laughs) (laughs) So I have one quick announcement before we get going too far, and that is is that I finally have the website up for JS Remote Conf. So if you're into JavaScript, I know this isn't the show, but I know that there's crossover between the shows. If you're looking for a conference experience where you don't have to pay for travel, you don't even have to leave your house, you can watch with your bunny slippers, then go to jsremoteconf.com. The price is actually pretty low, too. So, yeah, definitely uh, check that out. And uh, we're putting together a program in the evening so that you don't have to take work off either. So we're we're kind of removing as many barriers as we can to that. So, anyway, that's all I'm going to say about it. So what is there to applause? By the way, I'm, I'm watching the, the little video where it shows you the app, and the battery's almost dead on the iPhone. But besides that... Um, what is there to applause that is interesting that we can talk about as far as how it works and things like that? So I think uh, what's interesting to me uh, and I think relevant for iFreaks is I've worked a lot on back-end systems and enterprise systems and then I've come into mobile as I've realized that that's my passion. And what I've done recently is I wrote pretty much the solo developer for a long time on Band of the Day uh, on Android after having written it for iOS and now I'm writing, uh, I'm leading the team that's that's building the iOS version of Android, uh, the, sorry, the Android version of Flaws after having worked on the iOS version. So one thing that's interesting to me is how the two platforms are similar, how they're different, what we can learn from each other in a positive way rather than the, the kind of general iOS is better than Android stuff that we hear so often on the blog and in the pubs around uh, San Francisco. I think as well, I'm interested in looking forward as to what's coming next in mobile. And I think obviously the announcement of the Apple Watch versus the Android gear and the Android uh, Wear sort of platforms are interesting in terms of what we should be looking out for next in, in the way that people use our software on mobile devices. So I think that's like a really interesting topic for me. Um, talking through like what we can learn from each other or things that you miss when you're developing on iPhone, things that you miss on Android and vice versa, because I've not got a chance to do that much Android development, but I'm sure there is some stuff that's better on that platform or some ideas on that platform that would be good to see on iOS. And I, and I also, I guess I wonder like how much stuff there is that we could, if we wanted to bring to iOS from Android, like what stuff we could kind of build an open source equivalent of, for example. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. The thing that interests me about Android, there's quite a different philosophy when it comes to the way that you interact with the devices. So, for example, uh, a good example would be, say, messaging or sending an SMS. 
if you're on Android, any app can ask permission to have access to your SMS, to sending messages, to those sort of functions on the app. And that permission is asked for when you install the app. It's not at the time of use, it's at the time of installation. And so people can tend to forget that they've given permission to something to send SMSs. On the evil side of the spectrum, that means that there have been malware apps or Trojans, if you like, that will send out expensive messages to pay for use SMS endpoints. They get taken off the store, obviously, as soon as they're found, but they do exist. On iOS, the whole philosophy of sharing is quite different, where any app can send an SMS, can send a message, but it goes through the central iMessage app and it pops up. It always pops up the iMessage app so that the user can decide what they want to send. They can edit the message. They can decide whether to send it or not to send it. And in fact, you know, the app doesn't even find out if the user eventually sent that message or not. And that, that's just one example, but it goes through the, the whole platform. If you look at the way that emails are sent, if you look at even the way that Facebook updates are sent, there's a, an expectation. I think it's from memory part of the iTunes uh, agreement that we all click through that when doing something on behalf of the user, you always have to ask that user beforehand. You can't just send something off without them being able to edit it or review it or whatever. That obviously means that there are some things on Android that are actually much easier to do. For example, many apps will now authenticate your phone number by sending an SMS in the background and receiving it and checking that it's received. And then, you know, you never have to interact with them, your SMS app or whatever. So there are some things that are easier using that model, but there are definitely some negatives as, as a user. Anyone want to comment on that or should I just go on? <laughs> I think it's kind of, to me, it feels like, Android's develop. I don't know. Android Android development is, or the Android philosophy is more developer centric, and the iOS philosophy is more uh, user centric. You know, like it does make it a lot harder to do. It sounds like what you're saying is it makes it harder to do some stuff on iOS as a developer, but as a user, I'm way more in control. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think this is actually key to Apple's DNA. It's it's actually fascinating to me if you go back and look at the classic Steve Jobs keynotes over the years. There's always a point during the keynote where he says, "We care about you, the user. This is what we want to do. We want to make a delightful experience for the users." And the truth of the matter is, that's not marketing speak. That's in the DNA of the company. And what's interesting is. If you think about it, that's Apple has have been giving away their trade secret for the past 25 years. And the fact that they're still at the top of the uh, top of their game is testament to, the, to how hard it is to actually recognize that that's their trade secret and actually follow up on it. It's interesting as well. I mean, if it's, it's fascinating at the moment because, you know, Google basically drive Android development. And the, the thing with Android development is Google make money off ads. So there are features that you might want as an Android user that Google are probably never going to build. For example, in Safari, you have the mobile reader view where you can get rid of all the ads and you can just get a nice readable view of the content. That doesn't exist in Android Chrome and it doesn't exist because it's Google and they want you to see the ads. It's kind of fascinating to me of how the DNAs of the, the two different companies uh, form the, the way that the platforms are developed and developing. There's other examples, like another good example is Passbook versus what I guess is the closest Android equivalent, which is Google Now. So Passbook, of course, if I want my, uh, like, you know, I went to see Interstellar last night and I get my tickets through Fandango and 
if I want to put that into Passbook, I don't actually know if you can on Finagra, but let's assume that you can. I would say tap on something and it would add them to my Passbook and then the tickets are in my Passbook, which is what I show when I get to the theater. On Android, it's actually in Google now. And what that means is if I've got a Gmail account, then Google will scan my email, will recognize the fact that there's a receipt from Fandango and will take that and display it in Google now. In some ways, it makes Google now much more powerful. It can show things that I've never told it about officially, but it also ties it specifically to Google services like Gmail. And it also, it can sometimes be like creepily magic. <laughs> you know, you, you will search for a flight number and the next day, Google now will tell you when that flight is arriving, which is useful, but also kind of creepy. It comes back again to that, that whole sort of user centric thing of on iOS where the user has to consciously make a decision for something to happen. So there's a bit more of a mental model in the user's head of how this stuff is happening. It's not, oh, that's there because I tapped it sort of thing. I think another example of that difference in mentality is the way that the app stores work. Like Google are very, very algorithm and data centric. So, and, and they're obviously very good at scaling, right? So they would never have considered the idea of having a human being involved in every single app review process because that doesn't scale. Whereas Apple are very, well, I won't say that they're not good at scaling, uh, <laughs> but Apple are very centered on the user. And so they think it makes sense to have some a human make sure that the user is going to get a good experience from every single application. Yeah, that's that's something that we've thought about when in Applause as well, if I can uh, switch back to what we do. When we sell tickets, we want to be more than just a ticket selling store, for example. We want to be more like a concierge service. So we want to be able to remind you when the event comes closer. If you have questions about going to the event, there's a chat interface where you can talk to our customer support about, you know, how you get your tickets or are they on the way or, or you know, I'm at the venue, where should I go? And we thought for a while about making that algorithmic. And then we thought, well, actually, we're an early stage startup. We should learn how to do it by hand first and we should be having conversations with our customers as much as we can. So we do that. We try and scale the human factor, I, I would say, rather than trying to make everything algorithmic from day one. A lot of our curation is done by hand. And obviously that implies that we have to build tools that help people curate things quickly. But at the same time, it means that there is still a human touch to it. And I think that's something that I think is a happy medium but between something that's purely algorithmic and something that is actually still maintains a bit of quirkiness and a bit of humanity. Yeah, it might be worth even mentioning, uh, going back to examples, I think Siri versus, you know, Google's voice stuff, which doesn't even have a name. Siri definitely has a personality, whereas OK Google Now is kind of very machine-like and robotic. Just different philosophies, I guess, different kind of feel. So having gone through, you know, two different apps, you built the iOS app and you're doing the Android app. The question I always get as, as, you know, iOS developer is, you know, what about the cross-platform tools? And for a year, we've been fighting this off, you know, saying it really doesn't save money. Performance is not there. The platforms are too different to make a good experience. And that's what we've been saying for a few years. And we've gone, we've been fine with that. But I'm just wondering if your views on that have evolved and if so, how so? That's a really good question. I have always felt that developing using the native tools is the right way to go. 
And that's from conversations I've had and from the experiments I've done, that still seems to be the case. I know people who've worked with some of the cross-platform JavaScript frameworks, for example. Uh, you know, PhoneGap was one of the earlier ones where you know, you're embedding essentially an HTML page in, inside a, a very thin app. That, I think, just leads to uncanny valleys on both sides of the fence, on both Android and iOS. They're different platforms. They feel different, and they should feel different. And if you build something that's just a thin wrapper around HTML, well, first of all, you're going to have performance problems because it's not the same as running it in a browser. Secondly, you're going to spend a lot more time trying to tweak JavaScript to make it feel more native because people will use your app and they will get this feeling of of uncanniness because the scrolling doesn't work the same way or there's the flick doesn't work the same way or rubber banding is not quite the same. And your focus shifts from building a product to actually trying to make something that feels native, which is pointless. Our apps are all 100% native. As someone who's worked on the back end and the front end, I tend to write a lot of the initial code for the API communication layer and maintain that across the different apps. The interesting thing, though, is, and you know, this is as close as you can get to a natural experiment, having worked on the iOS version of Band of the Day, for example, and then worked pretty much solo most of the time on the Android version of the app, I can tell you that it took us four months as a team of four people to develop the first version of Band of the Day. The first version of Android of Band of the Day was done in about three months solo by me. And that's not because Android is a better platform to develop on. It's not at all that. It's that all of the hard decisions were already made. All of the decisions about interaction design, all of the decisions about look and feel, about the kind of assets, how the back end would work, how the users would interact with the device, all of those decisions were really made. And that's where all of the time is spent in development. It's not in building screens. It's not in building API communication layers and things like that. Having said that, I think there is a potential place for frameworks that can be reusable across the API layer. So it's funny to talk about a mobile app as a multi-tiered app uh, with a with a back end and a front end. You know, you've got the view and you've got the communication layer that talks to the back end, but they are actually multiple layers. And that back end layer is obviously not directly visible to the user and there is much more amenable to cross-platform development. So we've seen examples like Lua, I think, is a common uh, usage. And I think, Pete, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you guys were working on a JavaScript engine-based backend for iOS and Android apps. Is that still a thing? Uh, yeah, it's still a thing. We ended up open sourcing it. It was called uh, Calatrava. Mm. And, yeah, same. that basically trying to take advantage of that idea of if you want that native look and feel, don't spend a bunch of time trying to make HTML look native embrace that native look and feel and, and build native UIs. But yeah, the user doesn't care whether your business logic mm-hmm. and your API communication layer and all the rest of it is implemented in JavaScript or Objective-C. And JavaScript is fast enough for that stuff anyway. So that's what we were doing with Calatrava is to just use JavaScript for the stuff that's shared across platforms. The thing that was really interesting with that, though, is we made it so that you can start with a web technology for the kind of the front end for the face and then upgrade to native for each screen, with the idea being, I think exactly like you say, Chris, the hard part is figuring out the interaction design and figuring out how the screens are going to flow together and all that kind of stuff. And for some teams, I'd say quite a lot of teams, they can do that faster 
with web technologies. They can experiment with user interfaces faster with HTML and CSS than they can with Android or iOS native. So the original intention was we'll build it so that you can kind of have a, a cheap prototype built in HTML and CSS, and then you can upgrade each of those kind of faces to native. What we were quite surprised at is how often you don't need to do that, how often the users can't really tell whether it's being laid out and rendered in HTML or, or iOS. I think the, the big thing where you do see differences is around animation and scrolling and things like that. But if the animation and scrolling is done natively and the bit inside is HTML, a lot of times you can get away with it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that's true definitely. of, uh, And there's a few pages in, in our apps that are essentially just rendered HTML from the back end. And I think that's, that's definitely uh, worthwhile. You don't need to make everything native. But I think it's a false economy to think that you can build an entire app cross-platform. I think one of the other interesting things about that is I've noticed, particularly with mobile development, that there seems to be an increasing amount of specialization amongst developers. There are definitely people, and it's probably slightly more true of the iOS developers because historically Objective-C has had quite a big barrier to entry just because it's such a different language to the other languages that we've grown up with, I guess. And so you see a lot more specialization, particularly here in the Valley. There's definitely iOS developers who do nothing else. And there's definitely an increasing number of people who are just Android developers and don't know iOS. I think that's something that I would like to see blur a lot more over time. I think there's huge benefits to understanding both platforms and you know being conversant, at least, in the way that the different uh, platforms work and are developed. When I switched from iOS development to Android development on Band of the Day, I actually took the plunge, got a Nexus Android device and used it exclusively because I wanted to understand how the platform felt as a user. And I continually come back to that experience. I still use an Android phone because I'm still developing on Android, although I do also have Apple devices, obviously. And there are often design decisions that we have to make and interaction design decisions in particular that make perfect sense on iOS, but are actually very alien on the Android platform. Obvious example of that is the up button versus the back button. The up button, strangely named, I know, is what you have on a navigation controller, the back button on a navigation controller. On an Android, you'll see it on the top left as well, but it has a slightly different behavior. It goes up the hierarchy of screens. And there is another button called the back button, which is like a back button for a web browser that goes to the last place you came from. So they have quite subtly different behaviors. And if you haven't actually lived with an Android device, you'll probably do something that's, that feels very alien to a native Android user as you implement those particular buttons. So I think um, you know living with a device is, is actually important when you're developing on that platform. So that leads me to ask a question, and that is, generally, we have this idea that we want an iPhone app and an Android app, and we want them to do the same things or provide the same functions. So how much of the logic do you then push into the app versus, you know, maybe managing over the API, where, you know, you have shared functionality and you can have it done the same way, both sides? That's a good question. I'll give you a concrete example of somewhere where we initially got it wrong and where we're actually slowly fixing it. We actually have three different versions of Applause now. We have the iOS version, we have the Android version, and we have an HTML5 version that where you can actually buy tickets for pre-sales for band shows and things like that. 
And all three of our platforms re-implement the shopping cart functionality so that we don't have a back-end shopping cart concept in the API. Currently, each of those three different platforms has their own implementation of fetching all the things you need to go through the purchase flow and build up your order and then sending the order out at the end. And that has led to a fair amount of duplication of code. And so what we've started to do now, initially on iOS, and then we'll move it onto the other platforms, is to build a back-end abstraction for that, where we build up incrementally the order on the back-end and take a lot of the logic that was on the client and move it into the API. And I think that's a fairly common pattern. It's actually kind of tricky in in mobile apps in particular because your versions are going to last a little longer. It's very different from doing web development where if you have a new abstraction on the back end, you can just immediately replace all of your front end implementations with that new abstraction. On mobile, you have to build the new abstraction and then wait a couple of months for everyone to upgrade their devices and then retire the other one if you ever get to retire at all. So we're in the process of doing that. And I think that that's something that you have to think about in mobile differently from the way you think about it in, for example, web development. It's actually interesting. I think of that as refactoring. I think of that as refactoring across app boundaries, but it's still refactoring. It's To me, it's still a case of, okay, we've got an abstraction here that works. Let's move it to a place where it can be reused. And I think you have to continually be thinking about that. One of the other things we're looking at, we currently use hand-rolled JSON as our uh, communication mechanism on our APIs. And I'm interested in investigating something like protocol buffers because that allows us to generate a lot of the API code, which does give us some reusability across the different platforms, more so than we have in JSON, and also gives us some other nice things like schema support, for example. So we know that we're calling the same things the same thing on different platforms. So that's part of the answer. I think that's part of the answer, the question you asked. Yeah, kind of. Well, it, it seems like, you know, some things make sense to duplicate across the different platforms when the functionality, you know, the the interface is going to change from one to the other is mm. the impression I'm getting from you. And then I guess my question is, though, when do you make the decision to push something down into the API versus pull it up? Right. Because right. there's not just the trade-off of, hey, the interface on Android is a little different, but there's also the trade-off of it takes time to go talk over the internet to the API to get the information that I want. Yeah. So what we do is we try not to be developing the same thing on multiple platforms at the same time. So we have this kind of leapfrog approach where if we have a new feature, we will pick one of the platforms and develop it there. And then once we've proved out the API and the interaction, then we'll port that to the other platforms. And it's not that iOS comes first these days or Android comes first. It's it's just whoever has more scope at the moment, depending on what they're working on and what's coming up in the uh, in future versions. So that I think is uh, that that's useful because it, again, coming back to what we were talking about before, the hardest thing isn't actually developing, isn't actually writing code, isn't actually uh, cranking out the UI. The hardest thing is getting the interaction design right. So let's do that first on one platform and then. Once we've learned what works, we'll move that onto the other platforms. I That's think a really that, interesting strategy. I've never, I've never heard of teams doing that before, but it actually seems like a pretty smart way of doing it rather than trying to figure it out in two different places at the same time. 
Yeah, I think it's I think it's really important. It actually, if you have the scope for it, it can let you do uh, more than one thing at once as well. So Android could be investigating a new, maybe a new uh, seating chart. We have an interactive seating chart. So Android might be investigating that while iOS is doing another feature, maybe an enhancement to chat or to sharing or something like that. So it allows us to kind of concentrate on one thing at a time. Do you ever build things on one platform and then realize that they weren't a super great idea or that they weren't something that's needed on the other platform and just leave them just on the one platform? Absolutely all the time. (laughs) In fact, that's one of the reasons why both Band of the Day and Applause on Android have taken less time to deliver because there's parts of the original apps that we did on iOS that we realized are rarely used and are probably not necessary to bring onto the new platform. There are also some other... And some of that is, is fundamental differences, like the way that sharing works on iOS versus Android is in applause is interesting. We use standard system share buttons on Android rather than trying to develop our own kind of friend pickers and things like we have on the iOS device. Part of that is technical because on Android, you tend to have a, a larger variety of ways of, of sharing, like many different SMS apps, many different mail programs. So you can't pick one and then say, okay, everyone's going to share using this. So you have to be a bit more democratic, I guess, when you do those sort of features. Do you ever get bad reviews or people kind of complaining that their wife has the has an iPhone and she has features that they don't get on their Android or vice versa? We've actually been very lucky in that most of the feedback we get about not being on one platform or the other is just please be there because we want you to be there, which is actually really nice. You know, we had people when we were just on iOS, we had someone who always one of my favorite things. We had someone who was using band of the day on, on his iPhone. And when he got his Android, he kept his iPhone around just on Wi-Fi, so he could use band of the day. So he was very wow. happy. We did the Android version. It's always nice when someone's, someone loves your app that much. Wow. I thought you were going to say you had someone who reverse engineered your API and built the Android app for you. <laughs> <laughs> I actually worked at the company where someone did that. <laughs> it was pretty pretty amazing and it was uh it was a large bank and they weren't very happy about the fact that someone was <laughs> using their API totally un- unofficially but yeah that that happened because they they didn't like the Android app so they built a better version themselves that's <laughs> really funny you touched on something there Chris, that the, I guess the diversity, so if you're going to be generous, the diversity, if you're going to be mean, the fragmentation in the Android world, and people talk about this a lot, I think it's, it's one of those things, and going back to the start of the conversation, you said there can be a, tends to be an adversarial kind of relationship, and one of the things that iOS developers like to say about Android development is, oh, there's fragmentation, and you have support all these different operating systems and screen sizes and, and all the rest of it. Having spent time on both platforms, what's your take on that? How real is that? It's definitely real, and it's real in ways that you don't expect. Like the one that everyone always mentions is is screen size, but screen size is not a big problem in Android because the tools have always supported multiple screen sizes, right? And and so layouts have always been easy to support different screen sizes. But what is interesting is that many vendors actually customize Android quite extensively, and so. You can have bugs that are very hard to find and are caused by vendor customizations that you would never guess even exist. I'll give you an example. So we have a drop-down menu in Band of the Day, and we are very strong on design. So everything is has its own custom font. 
So in Android, you can use an attributed string, essentially. So you instead of setting a string, you set a string with a font into a control. And we had a crash on a live version of Band of the Day from someone tapping on that pull-down menu. And what was happening was in one vendor had patched Android to log the name of the of the menu item that was selected. And the menu item was actually returning a spannable string, not a string. And they were, they were casting something that wasn't a string back to a string, and it caused the app to crash. And there's no way you could guess that because that was a, a customization that they had done for that particular device, for that particular vendor. And there's cases like that. That's a rare case. But there are definitely cases like that, or there have been in the past, where you will not have a service that you expect to be there or the entire UI will be skinned differently, so all of the standard colors are different, so your app looks really strange. You basically have to override every single system color if you're not using the standard kind of themed colors on Android, which can be a pain. I just want to touch really briefly. I had an Android phone for a long time, and uh, what you're talking about with the customizations, either by the carrier or by the vendor, those kinds of things drove me crazy. The other issue was that a new version of Android would come out, and I couldn't get it for like a year or a year and a half, and all of the new apps were using the new version. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's interesting. People talk about Android as being an open platform and iOS as being a closed platform. For the end user, it's actually the other way around. Mm-hmm. For the end user, Android is much more closed because I can't upgrade my phone. I can't put the new version on the day it's released like I can on iOS. I can't install anything on my phone in some places. You know, they, there are certain places and, and vendors and, and uh, carriers who customize the phones and won't let you use, for example, the Google Play Store. The Kindle has its own Play Store, has its own App Store. And so from a user's point of view, it's much more closed than iOS is. The genius of Apple was to release a product that was so compelling that carriers felt that they had to have it, even though they had to cede responsibility for what gets installed on the phone. People tend to forget that before the iPhone, that was unheard of. The idea that you would be able to install what you wanted on your phone was impossible. And on Android, it often still is. Google are moving, or Android, the platform, and Google, you know, the company who leads the platform, are moving to change that as much as they can. They've moved many more of the services in recent versions of Android into what they call Google Google Play services, which can be updated the same way any other app can be updated on the phone, which means that quite extensive changes to the platform can be rolled out incrementally, even if the carrier is refusing to to do a major major number update on the phone. Uh, And Android does have backwardly compatible SDK, although it's somewhat awkward to use. It's Android is developed in Java, but it's a very strange breed of Java. It feels a lot like a kind of Java that was written by C programmers, which it probably was because it's <laughs> um, uh, it, because that's the nature of embedded design. You know, you've got to build something that's efficient, so you use static variables everywhere and magic numbers, and you pass around hash maps essentially and things like that. So it's definitely an issue, but it's not an issue in terms of screen size, and it's not an issue in terms of which SDKs you use. It tends to be more in terms of what the carriers have customized and whether you can actually use certain services. So, for example, Google Maps may not be installed, so you may not have access to a Maps SDK. So you have to show a button that says, please install this external service if you want to use the map sort of thing, which, of course, is is rarer on iOS because you've always got the Apple Maps SDK or, or whatever. 
So Must given be... that there's all, there's all these different options, all these different devices, operating systems, and different flavors of Android, what are some techniques to kind of manage this complexity? Good question. I think general rule of thumb is to have as many devices as you can buy <laughs> um, <laughs> and to t- test it on different devices from different vendors, particularly uh, Samsung uh, have a very customized version of, of Android. So it's important to to test your device on a Samsung device because the UI will look completely different. The other thing is there are tools out there. I think Testroid is one, but there's a bunch of uh, vendors who have basically racks of hacked devices where you can send up an automated test using Robotium and run it across multiple devices and see what the screenshots look like and see if you're getting any weird crashes. We've done a little bit of that. We don't do a lot. We've found that actually manual testing and a limited amount of automated testing is actually sufficient in most cases. We also have targeted for our Android, we've targeted version 16 plus, which is 4.0.3, I think. And that is the point at which much of that fragmentation was addressed by the SDK. So devices that are newer than that version are actually much easier to target uh, than if you're targeting earlier versions of Android. And, you know, we made a conscious decision to do that and it's turned out to be the right decision, I think. You do have to go further back in time on Android than you do on iOS. You know, it's well known that iOS users update their phones much more quickly than Android users. So that's something you have to bear in mind when you're d- developing on Android. So how reusable are design patterns that you're using? You know, you start, you'll do like a fast follower. You call it leapfrog approach where you kind of work out one feature, say in iOS. Now, if you're working with one designer, how much of their design assets are being reused? I would say that the feel of the design is used more than the assets of the design. Nowadays, iOS is much flatter than it used to be, but it still has a different kind of design aesthetic to Android. Interestingly, and this comes back to fragmentation, I think, Android, the new material designs that have come out of Google emphasize a lot of flat textures and a lot of very simple shapes like buttons around shapes very few actual image assets. And I think that's partly because there's so much fragmentation in terms of screen DPIs and so forth that you can't do what you do on, on iOS where you ship you know, an image and then an at2x. There's actually HDPI, MDPI, XDPI, XXDPI, and XXX. So you'd have to do six different assets to do the equivalent thing on Android. And so many of the new designs, like material design, are designed to be programmatically generated rather than image like PNGs and compositing and stuff like that. So I think that's part of an answer to that question. The feel, the interaction design can be reused, but generally the assets are are unique to each platform. I'm interested to hear about the APIs. You you talked about, you know, Android feeling like it was Java written by, by C developers. One of my favorite things about iOS as a platform is the quality of the APIs, specifically the consistency of the APIs and the design patterns that are very consistently uh, embodied and very kind of small set of patterns that are applied in lots of different places. What's the compare and contrast, I guess, that versus Android? Is, is Android really bad or is it not that bad? Or That's another good question. I think I 100% agree with you on iOS and the uh, iOS platform and the APIs 
when you think about what Objective C is and what Coco is, it has existed. It's actually older than so. The next system, which of course was the origin of Coco, was out before Windows ninety four. So when you're looking at NS string, your know, next step string, that is a, a an object that's been in the wild for what is it now? You know, twenty thirty years, and it shows in the depth of the platform and the the history of the platform and the very strong aesthetic in the APIs and. It's also interesting to think of that in terms of the way that engineering works at Apple. If you're developing uh, QuickTime or if you're developing uh, something on Mac OS X, you are using the same tools, you are using the same design patterns, you're using the same aesthetic in your APIs that someone who's developing the APIs for iOS are. And that, I think, having everyone in the organization engineering-wise pulling in the same direction really shows in the quality of the APIs and the quality of the tools. One of the things that's been stinging me this week is performance testing on Android, and it's very, very rudimentary compared to the kind of powerful tools that you have on iOS. The problem with Android is that Java was a choice that was made, I think, for familiarity reasons and for pragmatic reasons, but it's one that I think is is starting to bite on Android development. There was a prominent case of Oracle suing Google for reusing Java in ways that they felt were unfair or against the Java language. The version of Java that you can use on Android is still Java 7. You can't use any of the nice Java 8 you know, closure APIs and streaming APIs and things like that. The brand of Java that's used, like I said, is, is a very different beast to the, the, the sort of feel of the APIs on, a, on other Java projects. There's lots of passing around of hash maps and building, or they're called bundles, but they're essentially hash maps. There's lots of magic numbers. There's no real use of... So, you know, one of the things that I think is most interesting in terms of design patterns dates back to Josh Block's Effective Java book is the strongly typed enumeration pattern, which is now part of Java syntax, but it's not used on a, on any of the Android APIs. It's all just magic numbers. So it's like, you know, you have to remember which number is, a, which constant is appropriate for which API. So although it's Java, it's a very different type of Java to one that you would have used on another platform. And I think the fact that the Java VM is not the same down to the metal as Objective-C and Coco are on, on iOS and Mac OS X is actually quite a kind of a problem because it means that if Android wants to get more efficient, if they want to get a, get rid of garbage collection, for example, and use something like Arc, or if they want to do really sophisticated compiler-type tricks like Apple are doing now with Swift, which is fantastic, they have to move off the JVM. And if they move off the JVM, then where do they go? There's the NDK, but that has none of the uh, UI components that are purely Java at the moment. So do you need some kind of layer to wrap the two together? There's kind of a bind there when you think about where could Android the platform go in terms of development over the years? It's an interesting question. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what the answer might be. I would love to see, for example, a version of Google's Go language that was targeted to Android. And there have been some open source attempts at doing something like that. Or maybe a higher level language that's still built on the JVM, like Clojure, for example. And there's an attempt at that as well. But the choice of the JVM is great in a pragmatic sense, but in terms of uh, evolving the platform, it's fairly constraining, I think, in a way that is very different from what Apple are able to do with iOS. 
It's pretty funny because I think a few years ago we could have had the exact same conversation but the other way around, right, where Objective-C is this dead language that they can't move anywhere and no one wants to learn it and so many people know Java and it's so easy to get started with Android and it's and it's it's clear and undeniable that Android will win because of the platform they chose. But the argument you're making is, is pretty legit in the other way, particularly now that you have Swift, which, you know, for its faults in its early age is still a very, very much, in my mind, a lot more attractive than programming in, in Java on a virtual machine. Yeah. It's worth mentioning that our iOS team are actually using Swift for all their new functionality. The fact that you could do that is actually pretty impressive as well, that you can say, oh, okay, new functionality is going to be in Swift and it's going to interoperate with our Objective-C code and so forth and so on. I think what Apple have done and what the LLDB team have done with Swift and with the, the APIs and the and the language and the, the whole kind of infrastructure of, of iOS is just fantastic. When you look at things like even Arc, Arc is a great example of really amazing, powerful innovation at Apple that just kind of bucks the trend of the rest of the industry. Everyone was expecting garbage collection on iOS, and they said, well, you know, garbage collection doesn't actually work that well on embedded devices, so we're going to invent something else, and we're going to have a really smart compiler, and it's, it's fantastic. It's really good. Yeah, it worked out so well they took garbage collection out of the desktop as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I have one more question, and that is, let's say that, and this comes directly out of, you said that with Applause for a long time, you were kind of the only mobile developer. So if I have an app that I want to build, and I want it to be on both platforms, am I better off to kind of build the MVP with one and then build the MVP with the other? Or should I consider, on the other hand, kind of building them in lockstep? I would say, and I would say, the pragmatic choice is to choose the one that you're best at. If you're an iOS developer, obviously choose iOS. If you're someone who has an Android phone and has done Java in the past or whatever, choose Android. Because the most important thing is is to learn how your users are using your app and learn what you actually want to build. That's the hard thing. And if you're going to spend a lot of time learning a new platform or whatever, then that's just going to be a waste of your time. I think Back to what uh, Pete said before, if you're a web developer, do it in HTML5, do an HTML5 app, and then once you've worked out what you want to build, it's much easier to go onto a, a mobile platform and build it there. Honestly, I think the development on any platform is the easiest part of what we do. The design is the hard part. So one quick addendum to that question. For a long time, people are trying to get an approach for building one or the other, and what I've always experienced is that iOS development has gone quicker. It's kind of the framework's a little more polished and there's less screen sizes to handle for. So people that have done both apps have said that the Android has been, it's taken longer, just more expensive. Do you still that, see that being the case? I don't think that's necessarily true. I think when I hear that, the first question I ask is, is that person an iOS developer? And almost almost always it is true that they are an iOS developer who's then moved on to doing Android. I don't think either platform is inherently harder to develop for or, um, you know, there's definitely trade-offs and there's definitely uh, differences in development. So I think that choosing the one you're most familiar with is, is the best thing for, as a first step. Once you know what you want to build, I don't think moving on to the other platform is necessarily harder. It may be harder if your team is is an iOS-centric team and they're trying to pick up a new platform. Our Android developers are 
Android developers, and that's that's what they do, and and that's what they're good at, and that's what they love, and and I, I think that shows in the in the way they do their work, and in the way the apps turn out. Hmm. All right. Well, should we get to some picks? Jane, do you want to start us off with the picks? Sure. I'm going to have one pick. And if you know anything about me, you know I like spicy foods, and mm. I like hot sauce, and I tend to use hot sauce like salsa. I put it right on chips, which is kind of crazy, but that's how I do ah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how hot? It's hot as it goes. <laughs> I know. I've never, I've never tried the ghost pepper, but you know, habanero, that's fine. You know, not that I even eat habaneros by themselves, but I found over the past month or two a really awesome hot sauce, which I think is fairly available. I think Whole Foods has it. They could have the local co-ops. But the Boulder Hot Sauce Company has a couple of really good hot sauces. They've got a habanero and a serrano-based one, and they're excellent hot sauces. So if you like spicy foods and you're tired of Tabasco, check it out from the Boulder Hot Sauce Company. Good stuff. Very nice. Pete, what are your picks? I have one topical pick, which will be slightly less topical by the time this is aired, but that's okay. Uh, .NET just got open-sourced. That's pretty cool. So I'm going to pick a tweet from 2009 where a .NET MVP asked Scott Goo to open source .NET and apparently just got blank stares from everyone in the room. But, you know, five years later, they uh, he obviously managed to persuade them. So congratulations to .NET. And I think it's actually pretty exciting for us as, as mobile developers because it means things like Xamarin uh, maybe become more interesting because we can actually use Visual Studio on our Macs or we can compile .NET on our Macs rather than having to keep a crappy old Windows PC lying around. Sorry, Windows, I don't like you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> pick number two, the UK Government Service Design Manual. So this is something which the... This is not something I would expect any government to have produced. It's actually a fairly sane document on how to build software in a modern way. So it talks about things like getting really fast feedback from your users, uh, releasing early and kind of MVPs and all that kind of stuff. It talks a lot about the right way to do agile. And it's from a, a government agency, and I would not have expected it, but it's actually really good. It's a really good, well-collected set of materials around how to build software in a user-oriented way, which I think is, is the way to be successful. My last pick is a beer. I got to go to Washington, D.C. for the first time this weekend, last weekend, and a beer that I was enjoying in that region was uh, Loose Cannon, an IPA from Heavy Seas Brewery. It tastes like a West Coast IPA, pretty solid, nice, sticky, lots of hops, lots of mouthfeel, very drinkable. If you can get hold of it, you should do so. Those are my picks. Nice. I'm going to just quickly pick some of the things that I've been using to pull together this website for JS Remote Conf. The first one is AngularJS, which is really awesome. It has a plugin called ng-animate, which allows you to do things like when you submit the contact form, it actually you know does the submission and then allows you to change which part of the page is showing so that it says, your message has been sent, click here to send another kind of thing. And then I use 99designs to get the design done, which is also very awesome and nice. And yeah, I think that's that's all that I've really got there. So I will uh, throw the, the horn over to Chris. Chris, what are your picks? Yeah. Just while we're talking about picks, Pete Hodgson's pick for government.uk is actually really good. That What they're doing over there is really interesting, trying to change the way that software development is done by governments and the sort of things they're doing over there is really exciting 
and points the way, I think, forward for, for many governments. Well worth a look. I would say, uh, since this is an iOS kind of centric world, I would pick, um, if you haven't tried it out, try out App Code, which is from JetBrains. Absolutely fantastic IDE. I know everyone uses Xcode and it won't get rid of Xcode for you, but if you want to be refactoring and if you want to be able to change your code in very flexible ways, there is nothing better than the uh, JetBrains IDEs. Their um, community access version of IntelliJ is, is the Java version of their IDE, but their community edition is the foundation of the Android, the new Android development platform, and is fantastic. And their app code is a fantastic IDE for iOS developers, and they have an EAP, an early access version, out now, which is free to try, which has early support for Swift, including some Swift refactoring, which is really awesome. My second pick, I think, would be a book that I found really mentally stimulating and is only peripherally associated with software development, but Endless Forms, Most Beautiful, The New Science of Evo Devo by Sean Carroll. It discusses the way the genome works. And for developers, it's really interesting because it goes into quite a lot of depth about the way the genome actually programs our bodies and the way that genes are actually activated and switched on and off and things like that. And I found my developer brain parts kind of really stimulated by reading that book. It's a great book, fantastic book. Do I want to do a third one? Let me do a third one. An article I read recently that I found really interesting was uh, The Hypercard Legacy, which is about the software tool that, uh, well, it's about Hypercard, which was part of the original Macintosh way back in the day. And it was one of the first times I ever saw any kind of hypertextual linking between different things. Also had a really interesting and quite quirky programming language behind the scenes. And it kind of bridged the gap between what we do as professional developers and what people used to do in things like Hypercard or, or you know, around the same time, things like Visual Basic, God help us. <laughs> There's, there seems to be a gap at the moment for the amateur developer, someone who just wants to do something simple to help make their day-to-day life better. And I think that's a gap that needs filling because you know we can't solve all the problems and there's a gap in the market there for, w- for what used to be filled by things like Hypercard. Fantastic tool, fantastic ideas behind it and something that I, I think is worth reading about and thinking about. Awesome. All right. Well, um, I don't think we have any announcements, so we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Thanks for coming, Chris. It was a fascinating discussion, and hopefully we can uh, get you back on another show for you know maybe another topic. How do people get a hold of you if they want to find out what you're up to these days? The best way would be to uh, look on my Twitter account, which is uh, Chris underscore Stevenson, S-T-E-V-E-N-S-O-N. I, I did have a blog, but uh, it died a couple of years ago with my domain, so I'm trying to resurrect that as we speak. You should resurrect your blog. (laughs) (laughs) Plus one. (laughs) Especially now where you're, I think with your position, you're in a place where you kind of have to experiment with things that are outside of your comfort zone. I mean, even, even now that you still have a team, you know, you're kind of forced to that as a CTO. So it'd be really interesting to see what you're discovering and what you're finding as well as what your team is finding as you explore these different areas of business and technology. Thanks. Yeah, I'm, I will try and get it back. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you all next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. 
You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join the conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreakShow.com slash forum. 